Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to this episode of Tatter. Tatter is largely recorded and edited in the digital media studios at Bates College, access to which is something I am very grateful for. But I do want to say that the views expressed in each episode of Tatter are in no way official views of Bates College. With all that said, here's Tatter. For decades now, and at many colleges and universities, occasional controversies have arisen over campus speech. At least as portrayed in the popular press, what's been at issue is the extent to which speech on campus is regulated, and also the extent to which speech on campus should be regulated. How should controversial speakers be handled? Should anything go? Should they be protested? Should groups be free to invite them at all? Should there be protests in classrooms? These are the kinds of questions that college and university faculties and administrators sometimes have to grapple with. We celebrate such values as freedom of inquiry and the free exchange of ideas, but what do they mean and how do they play out in reality? These are the kinds of questions addressed in this episode. I had the good fortune recently of talking to two people who've thought broadly and deeply about these issues. Stanley Fish is a literary and legal theorist and public intellectual. He served on the faculty at the University of California, Berkeley, Johns Hopkins, Duke, Florida International University, and currently the Cardozo School of Law at Yeshiva University. He's also been dean of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Among the things he's written is the book-length collection of essays titled, There's No Such Thing as Free Speech, and it's a good thing, too. Margaret Ember is a former litigator and assistant U.S. attorney, but according to her bio, she, quote, came to her senses and earned a Ph.D. in classics from Stanford, end quote. And she's now in classical and medieval studies at Bates College. She's currently an associate dean of the faculty at Bates and has been a leader of an effort to draft a statement of free speech principles for the campus. The three of us recently spoke, and that conversation is the basis of this episode, which is titled, Just Another Word. Well, freedom of speech, sometimes described as the free exchange of ideas, um, is generally thought of as a democratic value, and is tied uh, to the democratic emphasis on individual choice uh, and the restrictions on government. Uh, the restrictions that uh, don't allow uh, government uh, to monitor or pressure those choices. Part of the idea of freedom of speech is that every person, every citizen, uh, has an equal right to have his or her say uh, on matters uh, that are of uh, concern, and no citizen's voice is either privileged in advance, that is set up as an authority, or, or diminished or disadvantaged. Uh, in advance, that is set up as something that no one need listen to. Uh, freedom of inquiry, on the other hand, as an academic value, refers to the academic process of winnowing evidence on the way to determining what is true or false about a matter, a matter in the humanities or in the social sciences or in the physical sciences. And what that means that in the course of the process, many voices are excluded. 
uh, because the vetting procedures, sometimes the votes taken, um, result in declaring that this particular voice is not going to be heard, either in the classroom or in some research publication. So I would go so far as to say that the university is a mechanism for excluding voices and allowing only those voices that have passed through its rigorous procedures uh, to be heard. And finally, to answer the last part of your question, what that means is that the two concepts, freedom of speech and freedom of inquiry, really don't have very much to do with each other at all. And that consequently, uh, there are very few genuine free speech issues on campus. So, Margaret Ember, I wonder if your view of those two values is similar to Stanley Fish's. Yes, although I would say that um, I would want to historicize the um, the vetting function that the university provides and acknowledge that uh, some of the some of the vetting has not been driven uh, by say a, a desire for the best ideas but for it has it has been a desire to reify the class of people who can uh, have the microphone to state their ideas. It's not in a historically innocent process. I, I would say that I certainly agree with that it's as a uh, an accurate description uh, of, of the history you referred to. Uh, but I'm not quite sure whether uh, the truth of that historical fact um, should have any influence or bearing on the way the academy conducts itself from day to day. Do you think it should? Well, I would at least be open to arguments that uh, acknowledging that the subject positions of participants in the debate are different because of that historical process, that um, the freedom of inquiry of some people is more narrowly um, defined because of historical reasons. There is a, a philosopher at Emory, uh, who is an Af African-American scholar, who published a book about racism, and he routinely, routinely is assaulted by viciously for these ideas. Um, I as, I'm assuming a white scholar who wrote a comparable book would also be assaulted, but I suspect the intensity uh, uh, and, and the organization of the effort to assault him for his expression of ideas would be different, which means that that choice to pursue that line of inquiry for him comes with a higher cost. I just want, I want a university be, to be aware of that then when they're in the process of evaluating the place of the scholars in the university. And I'm, I'm and in fair, you know, in fairness to the larger argument, this, I'm referring to his uh, account of his experience. So I don't, he didn't publish emails where people were congratulating him on his idea. It was, um, it was very, it was profoundly troubling, uh, to see the personal attacks that he had to suffer, including threats on his safety because uh, he chose to, and he, to pursue this line of inquiry. So I think as the universities provide the vetting mechanisms for scholars and scholarship, 
there's a, a nexus of um, prices and choices that are differently affect the scholars and the scholarship under review. And I don't know that there's an algebraic formula to solve that problem. I just think there has to be an awareness of the problem and a commitment to solve the problem. Well, what you say reminds me to some extent of uh, the case of Amy Wax at the University of Pennsylvania uh, Law School. Are you familiar with her? Uh, I'm, uh, yes, I am. I'm, I'm, I don't have the details at hand, but I know I read about that case this year. Well, uh, everything began when Amy, a professor at uh, the law school at Penn, uh, a professor has been there for 17 years, co-wrote an op-ed in the Philadelphia Inquirer Choir, um, with a professor of law at San Diego University, uh, Larry Alexander. And what the op-ed said, and of course I am simplifying here, is that some of the social problems that beset us today uh, could be remedied in part if we returned uh, to the values of the 1950s. Um, <laughs> and this drew a very strong and negative response from uh, many people uh, who did not have the sanguine view of the 50s that these two authors seemed at times to have had. And then 33, I believe, is the number of uh, Wax's faculty colleagues uh, wrote a, an open letter uh, in which they uh, not only disagreed with her views, which is perfectly appropriate, but condemned her. And right. that was the word used, condemn, which I think is perfectly inappropriate. Uh, so it, it's at that moment uh, when the give and take uh, of uh, academic and scholarly inquiry um, is supplanted by something else, and uh, in my view, uh, that uh, something else should be rebuked. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I think the, the you know the res the response and the the discussion would have been better if it was a, a thoughtful discussion about why, uh, for instance, as a woman, as a gay woman, I would never want to embrace without a lot of asterisks the values of the 1950s. Right. <laughs> So I want to shift the conversation to a more student-focused mm -hmm. set of issues. And my question is about a particular case, but I want to scope out from that case to a broader set of issues. And it's the case of Murray and Middlebury, uh, for those yeah. who don't know. Uh, Charles Murray, uh, um, one of the authors of The Bell Curve, uh, spoke a couple of years ago at Middlebury and was the subject of vociferous student protests during uh, the first effort of his to give a public talk. The talk was moved to a different location where he was essentially interviewed uh, by a member of the Middlebury faculty and on their way out of the building they were confronted to put it mildly by protesters uh, who at one point uh, shoved uh, at least Murray and also uh, the professor who had interviewed him sustained injuries when 
their hair uh, and, and thus their head was 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 pulled and wrenched. And once they got into the car, protesters, and it's not entirely clear how many of these protesters were students at this point, but protesters shook the vehicle and some jumped on the hood. And so it was a, an administrator's nightmare, I think it's safe to say. Mm-hmm. I wonder if each of you could describe your thoughts on what it is that a college or university should do in order to prevent such a case from occurring? Well, um, I would say some of this is, uh, and this is starting with the, you know, what appears to be the most trivial aspect first, but ironically, it, it, I think it, it has profound consequences, but really good planning. If you're going to have someone you know will generate vociferous response and you don't have alternative exits for your building, you're going to compel that person to walk through an angry crowd. Mm-hmm. So I know that sounds kind of, you know, dully pragmatic, but on the other hand, if there had been a back door where the car could have been waiting, that then... Um, none of what happened at Middlebury would have turned to something beyond vociferous protests and assertion of ideas. So I, I think you can't underestimate the consequences of failing to adequately plan. And that, but that itself is, uh, it can be very difficult in a university context. And particularly if you're talking about public universities where you know, spaces can be rented out by members of the public because they're taxpayers. Uh, And you might not necessarily know until very late in the game what the intentions are. It's much, it should be much easier at a small remote college, private college to um, anticipate the the kind of just uh, physical consequences of um, conflict over ideas. Secondly, colleges that have managed these kinds of appearances successfully in that they remained a debate of ideas uh, rather than um, a, a brawl uh, have been ones where the, the dean of students was very forward-looking in, towards working with students who felt themselves to be the targets mm-hmm. of speech and to really um, encourage them to think about, uh, you know, generative responses. I think there was an example, I believe it was at Bard, where they, the students organized in response to a speaker, a counter panel and, uh, of people who were going to present exactly the opposite of idea. Um, and they basically, this, this, the student leadership of the various clubs and things like that were very effective in of encouraging their friends to, um, go to the panel and, and not, not even bother, uh, responding to the speaker. And then to show their disdain, the students organized a silly hat and kazoo protest. And they had students who were designated to protest the speaker as he arrived but all of the student intellectual ferment was in, uh, in the counter speech. Now, now, part of the problem with that is, A, it's reactive, and B, 
you can't be in two places at once. In an ideal setting, uh, you would have both the speaker and the counter speakers engaging with each other. A lot of a lot of people who are controversialists don't want that forum, but you know that I would say the response that I'm describing at Bard was probably for the promotion of the free expression and exchange of ideas actually more effective than than what happened at Mur- Murray because nobody re- nobody remembers what Murray talked about. Right. So we're not debating the idea. We're debating the brawl and, and, and its aftermath. Well, I would agree with much of that, except I would add to it, uh, I, I guess, some first-order reflections, beginning with the fact that extracurricular activities uh, are, as the word extracurricular, or phrase extracurricular suggests, not absolutely essential to the college or university's functioning. That is, you could have a college or a university which only had students, faculties, uh, libraries uh, and a computing center and didn't have um, student events or visiting speakers or panels uh, or rock bands or concerts and it would still be a college or a university whereas if you had something that indeed uh, displayed all of those extracurricular features but didn't have students faculty uh, c- c- uh, computer centers and libraries it wouldn't be a university now so one of the things that a university or college could decide to do was not to have extracurricular activities because they're more trouble uh, than they're worth, both the time uh, and the expense uh, of designing and planning them uh, would seem to be uh, out of proportion uh, to the educational uh, yield. But uh, in these days, it's uh, unrealistic to suggest that a college or a university uh, take that course of action and so we're back at the problem of how to deal with speakers uh, when they come to campus, and it is anticipated that their appearance will be controversial and perhaps uh, productive even uh, of, of, of violence. And I would say that uh, if you decide that you're going to uh, invite people to campus uh, and you're going to do so uh, without any censoring or selective mechanism. Uh, then you have to have, as as you suggested, extremely good uh, planning. In fact, you have to study the science of crowd control. Uh, and to put it perhaps even more harshly, you, it's, as an administration, you have to do your job. That is, at Middlebury College, the president of the college and some other people in the administration expressed surprise that there had been um, so much hostile activity around this event. Uh, at that moment, I would have asked them, um, how, how do you understand your job? If you were surprised at this, uh, it seems that you're not even uh, functioning um, um, as you should. Now, Robert Post, who's just stepped down recently as the dean of the law school at Yale, has another way of looking at this matter, which appeals to me somewhat. Uh, he says that universities have every right not to allow events on campus that are not directly related uh, to the university or college's educational mission. And therefore, he says, the university is perfectly within its rights and is indeed obliged uh, to say no uh, to student groups uh, who put forward uh, for invitation a, a person or a group 
that in the eyes of the administration will not add uh, to the educational mission, uh, but uh, simply provide a distraction or some kind of entertainment value. Um, again, I find this uh, very appealing because it seems to me that in all of these matters, questions should be answered by reference to a strong understanding of what the purpose of the enterprise mm -hmm. is. Um, and so a mechanism by which people who did not, according to the administration, uh, fit in with that purpose were excluded would seem to me to be perfectly uh, appropriate. Yeah, I think um, I think there's a, a, a an issue also about the sheer cost of um, yes of this. So if um, and and also the fact that we happen to be living in a time where um, there's uh, there's money to be made by, by creating quote unquote speech controversies. Right. Um, so, so, and and I think the interesting thing in the case of Middlebury was that the speaker's fee was not paid for yep. by Middlebury funds. It was an alum who paid it. So it allowed uh, Professor Murray to capture the auctoritas, um, if you will, of Middlebury for his ideas um, and, and Middlebury had no um, sort of effective way of saying, is this what we want to do uh, in the absence of a vetting system that would require students to submit um, speakers uh, for, for review. I think a, a, a project that required, however, a policy that required that uh, would not survive in any college or university campus that I'm familiar with. So, Why not? Well, because I think both students and faculty would um, be vociferously opposed to the idea that if they were inviting someone to campus, that that decision was being reviewed by an administrator and, and could be canceled by an administrator. I don't How know would that, that that's the right answer but I, you would as a practical matter you would be buying conflict on your campus with that policy and my question would be is is there a better way to get the outcome you want um, and you know one thing for instance you could do is say that students are welcome to invite anybody they want to campus but the the, the, the speaking fees must be paid for by the student club funds um, the kind of people who will take the money that student clubs have tend not to be controversialists. They tend to actually have, you know, be more interested in engaging in the debate. I don't know if that's an argument from principle or for pra from pragmatics. Well, it is, it is pragmatic, but I'm not sure that it would work any better uh, than, uh, than the uh, Robert Post uh, proposal. Uh, it, in fact, uh, there are persons who want to come to campus precisely to cause uh, controversy or to uh, stick a thumb in the eye of someone or other, yeah. uh, and that desire perhaps would be greater than the desire uh, to have a large fee. Now, I take, I think, I think your point that uh, both faculty and student groups uh, 
uh, would be uneasy uh, at having an administration make the decision. Uh, I, I, that's that that that's a good point. Uh, but administrations, deans, provosts, chancellors, presidents, mm -hmm. often make decisions on uh, promotion and tenure, which countermand the decisions uh, made uh, by individual departments. And, at, uh, and when that happens, uh, the individual department, I can tell you uh, from my experience as a dean, um, <laughs> is very unhappy. Mm -hmm. uh, but nevertheless, uh, there is sound reasoning uh, for uh, that uh, kind of uh, decision-making uh, process. Uh, and I would be willing, I think, to give the uh, post-proposal uh, a try, um, yeah. at least in, in lieu of the, uh, uh, the possibility of having to spend $600,000, as the University of California at Berkeley reportedly uh, did uh, to uh, protect uh, an event centered on a controversial person. Yeah. I think I think though that, that, that I, it, I think what might work in one context would not be successful in another. There is a big difference between um, a major university where most faculty members sort of know who the president and provost are by, you know, kind of vaguely seeing them, but the couldn't, you know, had no personal relationship with them. And then a small liberal arts college where we're, we live in each other's pockets. Right, right. And your effectiveness as an administrator uh, requires you to acknowledge you live in each other's pockets, which is not to say you're afraid to say no or to take unpopular decisions, but to say that when you say no and make decisions you suspect will be unpopular, you have a, a heavy burden of communication and explanation, and you're doing it in, in the, uh, the context of a face-to-face -face community. I think that is that operates quite differently at a major university. I agree completely. We have tools at our resources because we are a small face-to-face -face community that might be more effective at um, creating the outcome we want, which is a commitment to free expression and the free exchange of ideas, um, but also a commitment to, to our community to sustain itself as a place where people have a stake in and are committed to and want to see flourish. And those sort of social, um, in, you know, sort of implicit social standards may be more effective in creating that kind of community of free speech that is committed to the academic value of the speech um, than just the sort of, you, we're going to tell you whether or not you can have the speaker approach. Well, the one problem is the, is the nature of the students, or at least some of the students, uh, who are involved in these protests. At, Mid at Middlebury, the organizer of uh, Professor Murray's visit, I think it was the American Enterprise Club. Right. Uh, officials said to the uh, protesting students, that is before the event began, we look forward to hearing your opinions. Uh, the response was, ours are not opinions, ours are truths. Uh, <laughs> And what we have uh, is a is a group of students uh, hearkening back, I suppose, uh, 
to something like Marcuse's repressive tolerance, um, who are arguing that some views are simply not worthy uh, to be heard. They're not candidates for the truth. They've already been disproven and, and, and taken off the table. So why should we have people come to campus who want to uh, revive them? We won't listen to them. We will turn our backs on them. We will throw things at them. And we are justified in doing so because truth is on our side. Uh, if you have a large group of students imbued uh, with that attitude, uh, it's difficult uh, to reach them by any uh, concili conciliatory means. So on that note, I, I want to jump in, and that actually that segues into my next question, which is about the classroom itself. So I want to move away from uh, uh, public speakers, which, uh, Fish, you refer to as extracurricular. Nothing could be more curricular than what happens in the classroom. And I want to sure. shift uh, to... R-A-R, that's Reedies Against Racism, this uh, <laughs> group of uh, student activists at Reed College who, oh, yeah. who made the news, uh, I think in 2016, protesting HUM 110, which is a longstanding course at Reed College, um, and it's focused on texts historically texts from the ancient Mediterranean, Mesopotamia, Persia, and Egypt region, regions. And one student protester who was quoted characterized such texts, again, for the Mediterranean, Mesopotamia, Persia, and Egypt regions as, quote, Eurocentric, quote, Caucasoid, uh, and thus uh, oppressive. And I will not pretend to be neutral. When I see those labels ap applied to what strikes me as actually a pretty diverse set of regions. I'm skeptical, um, but I don't want to litigate the content of the criticism. For me, the, the question I want to put to each of you is, do you consider the classroom to be a space that under no circumstances uh, should student activists be permitted to disrupt uh, classes as these protesters did? In at least one instance, they created a, quote, noise parade, making it impossible for the lecturer to deliver uh, their lecture. And in, in multiple cases, they stood around the lecturer as they spoke, uh, stood in front of the chalkboard uh, as they spoke, disrupting the class. And so my question is, is the classroom a space that under no circumstances uh, should it be disrupted by student uh, activists? Or if you can imagine circumstances under which disruptions are permitted, is the are, are the merits of the claims of the protesters relevant to deciding whether or not they should be permitted to engage in disruptive uh, protest in the classroom? And no disruptive activity in the classroom should be allowed. The students who acted, as you described, the Reed students uh, acting, um, should have been expelled immediately and not readmitted. Um, and insofar as they have points to make, it's for, they are, in my view, political points, not educational points. I would go further and say that no member of a class, that is not someone standing outside the class or seeking to enter it from a position of protest, no member of a class has a right to raise these issues um, in, in the classroom and ask the instructor uh, to alter or change uh, the curriculum and, and any instructor 
who is met by such a request to just politely say, that's not what we're doing here, and go on uh, to the, the next more relevant question. You cannot, uh, you cannot relax this discipline for a second. As a, as a footnote before Margaret Ember uh, uh, offers her thoughts, I will say that, as you may know, uh, the Reed faculty have uh, approved changes to the content of HUM 110. I believe they'll go into place in at some point in 2019, and it will have a broader focus that will include, for example, coverage of Mexico City uh, and Harlem. So um, there is uh, there has been some response uh, to uh, the protests uh, that I don't mean to imply that the student activists are satisfied, but uh, the course has broadened, but. Of course, the active is unsatisfied and the faculty was craven. Margaret, your thoughts? Yeah, well, you know, I have, a, I have a, you know, a lot of cognitive dissonance here because my heart is when I see the video and the, there was a similar incident at Columbia, I'm just like enraged. I'm just like, you know, this, this, if there is a sacred space for me as a thinker, it is the classroom. And... Um, I, uh, so I, I, there's a, I, there's a lot in what um, Stanley Fish says that just resonates really clearly with me. Having said that, I would say, uh, I'd al- I also note that at Reed, the consequence, if you take a wider view than that particular day, that particular semester, that particular academic year, in fact, uh, the, the students on campus have developed a much more nuanced understanding of the classroom as a space. It was students themselves, uh, students of color themselves, who kind of pushed RAR to the side uh, at Reed um, because they very much wanted to study the ideas in question. And I don't believe there had been a revision to the Hume curriculum in, um, you know, 50 years or, or whatever. And that strikes me, particularly after the, the Stanford protests of the 90s, to be tone deaf. That we, we have seen that in these great ideas courses, that uh, as, as they've been um, deployed in colleges and universities, there has there has been an effective, attentive response to the to the consequences of history, and so Reed not doing it strikes me as an administrative failure. I, I also think, curricularly, I, I have a very good friend who's a a, 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 Mer- a U.S. attorney who was a scholarship student at Harvard, and I I remember saying to him once. Um, why why Harvard? You could have gone anywhere. And he said, because I wanted to learn the customs of my enemies. <laughs> and um, I, I often, when I talk to students about classics, I say, you know, if you, if you want to understand the kind of core radical nature of Western conceptions of female identity, uh, of what speech is, what political speech is, of what freedom is, you need to study these people and you need to have a critical lens when you do it because their words have consequences that are measured in millennia. And to pretend that they don't 
renders you a less effective citizen. Um, so you don't have to like Plato, but you damn well better take him seriously. Um, you don't have to like St. Augustine, but um, if you ever felt guilty about having sex in your life, you know, he's the, he's the reason why. Um, so I think presenting, you know, these culture courses, these great idea courses, as, um, as a way of educating yourself to understand the sources of the oppression that you're protesting would, is, is a reasonable approach to take. I think, so, so in answer to your question, my heart says, me, the professor says, that classroom is inviolate. Um, the choice not to expel those students immediately led to what in the history of a college that's been around for a century, it was the thing that led to a response that brought Reed into connection with, um, I think, the way most people, with what most people would consider best practices now. So I don't, I, I don't want to take an on-off position on this. Um, I would rather say this was an extreme case and if we and if our time frame is narrow when we evaluate it, we miss some of the productive things that happened as a consequence of it. And I, I before I uh, turn back to Stanley Fish, uh, and I, I hope you don't mind my uh, quoting you, uh, but in, uh, in there's no such thing as free speech, and it's a good thing uh, too. At one point. Fish, you, you say, quote, if we hearken to those who speak of the name of diversity, uh, there's a, and, I, and I say again that I myself resist the invocation of diversity as a principle, as a new theology, but if we hearken to those who speak of the name of diversity, the result will be more subject matter, more avenues of research, more attention to neglected and marginalized areas of our society, more opportunities to cross cultural, ethnic, and gender lines, more work, in short, for academics, and you go on to contrast that to what would happen if we hearken to those who would hold back the tide and defend the beachhead one thirty-five or 50 years ago, the result of which would be more rules, more exclusionary mechanisms, more hoops to jump through, etc. It would seem from that quote, that at least at the time that you wrote it, that even though you are clearly opposed to the tactics employed by the RAR uh, activists, it would seem as if uh, potentially you might, well, well, do you agree with Margaret's suggestion that there are benefits that come from responding to those concerns? Yes, I certainly agree, and I, uh, and I, and I don't repudiate uh, that quotation, but I want to make a distinction between the sources uh, of change. As all of us know, in the last uh, 20, 30, 40 uh, years, there have been enormous changes in the curriculum kinds of courses that were unimagined when I uh, entered the profession in the early 60s are now standard uh, on many campuses. Some courses that were standard have not gone by the wayside or are only given occasionally almost uh, as if they were items uh, in, a, in a museum. Uh, by and large, most of those changes came uh, because younger faculty members became interested in matters uh, with which older faculty members were relatively unfamiliar, and uh, students flocked uh, 
uh, to the classes being taught by these younger faculty member, members. And accordingly, the curriculum committee began to take account um, of, of these uh, changes, both intellectual changes uh, and demographic changes. And the curriculum was revised. Uh, as we all know, there are only two issues that uh, get the academic blood boiling, um, and one is, uh, of course, uh, a personnel issue, uh, promotion and hiring uh, or firing, and the other is curriculum, uh, curriculum issues. So I would hope that the impetus for curriculum change would come uh, from uh, faculties and not the uh, the changes uh, should not be made in direct um, in, 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 in direct response to student protests. And here I go back to the 1915 uh, statement on academic freedom and tenure uh, put out by the then fledgling American Association of University Professors. Um, and the authors of that document, which included, as I'm sure you know, John Dewey um, and other uh, noted academic voices uh, of the time, the warning was issued that decision-making in uh, colleges and universities should never be passed on uh, to external constituencies, but should always uh, be the province uh, of those uh, who uh, teach and write. I would say that today, in the current spate of protests, that students have become an external constituency, that the students now stand in the place where um, you know, church bodies or trustees or giants of industry uh, stood uh, at the beginning uh, of the 20th century as as groups that want to take over uh, the enterprise and radically remake it for political reasons. And in my view, students, uh, not all students, but some students uh, are now doing just that. Well, I do think, I do, you know, I started college in 1976, so it was after most of the great, you know, student uprisings of um, of the 60s, of the, but the, I think we have seen this before. <laughs> um, I also think, I would, I get, I take your point, I think, Many in many ways, the best definition of a faculty are professionals who argue over curriculum. That's what a faculty is, and and right. and it, and twas ever thus and should ever be so. But I also think we, for instance, we have to acknowledge that um, the overwhelming majority of faculty in the United States now are not tenure track, so they they are having this conversation. Um, from a place uh, of uh, much less authority than than they had when that uh, was written, when the, when the 1915 statement was written, um, we live in a place where um, a time when uh, states are sort of uh, state governments are attacking the intellectual freedom of um, faculty members in at their own state universities. I think the professorate is in a radically weakened position relative to 1915. I also think, um, you know, it, it, 
I, my, I'm frequently asked by students, why do I have to do this? You know, and, it, and I just, it was never a question that occurred to me when I was in college. It was, I was like, you have the PhD, dude. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. And I, I don't know that they don't have a right to ask that question. And, I, and if I let them ask the question, I have to be prepared to, A, if they, I'm challenged, say, maybe I shouldn't be asking you to do this. So I have a much, I think that, that students should have some say in the way we shape our curriculum. It can't be the dominant voice precisely because they don't, you know, have a long enough view and they don't have enough expertise. Um, but I don't think that students will ever take the subaltern's view um, again. And I also think that um, developmentally, it's better for, for the world that they don't. I think it, that ironically places a significantly greater pedagogical burden on members of the faculty. And the, the sad thing about it is it's placing that burden on them at a point where their, you know, their status as learned professionals is most under assault. Can I just jump in here, especially because we literally heard the bell tolling for us uh, <laughs> as you were answering. Um, so as I'm sure you both know, the Academy is under assault. And one particular criticism that's relevant to our conversation is that the, the claim is the free exchange of ideas within the Academy is somehow in a state of crisis and and under assault. I wonder if in brief, each of you could share your, what you would say to someone who makes that criticism. I would say you don't read enough. Uh, I think there are more vehicles for uh, members of the academy to express themselves and to engage in very lively debate. I, I can't tell you the number of blogs that I read uh, in economics, in politics, in African-American studies, that uh, in which academics debate ideas choosing a form that is accessible to a wider public than um, the journal article. And that, um, I, and, and, you know, I, the same thing with, I just think, that, for instance, I, I, I read Reason every day, not because I'm a libertarian, but because I want to know how these arguments are constructed and because I'm willing to accept sometimes that there are perspectives here, ideas here that I hadn't considered. So I feel like I have access to a far wider range of well-thought-out arguments um, than I have ever had in my life right now. My problem is I don't, I have to sleep. I don't have enough time to read everything I want to read. Well, I, I certainly agree with the pleasure and uh, privilege of studying in order to, studying and reading in order to see how various arguments are working and to find uh, new arguments that are being put forward that you might want to consider uh, and assess. And I think that's absolutely the central 
constituent feature uh, of academic life. And I do agree that there are more and more vehicles and opportunities for doing that. But on the other hand, there are persons on faculties, um, students, outside constituencies who don't see the academic life in that way, who don't regard it uh, in the manner that um, Aristotle regarded it in the 10th book uh, of his ethics and that philosophers like Max Weber and Michael Oakeshott have regarded uh, have regarded it as a scene of meditation, turning ideas over and then turning ideas uh, over again. This is the academic life. And I find that the emphasis on virtue and various forms of political correctness that are now um, uh, in vogue in various in, in parts uh, of our society uh, are uh, uh, are undermining uh, uh, that ideal. I proudly stand by the phrase "ivory tower," mm -hmm. and I think that we should embrace it, not apologize for it. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Stanley Fish and Margaret Ember for taking the time to chat with me. And I want to thank you for listening. If you want to stay engaged with Tatter beyond listening to the episodes, and if, despite recent events, you are still a Facebook user, then go to www.facebook.com slash tatter.rags and you can stay abreast of Tatter happenings. For now, thanks again for listening and be well.